Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest's writing centers on women and the challenges they face in dealing with what life throws their way. She's the host of the weekly podcast, Hear Us Raw, where she interviews debut novelists for the Women's Fiction Writers Association. She pens a monthly blog for Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers and serves as managing editor for the Wright City Magazine, a literary publication of the Chicago Writers Association. She makes her home in Milwaukee. Truth and Other Lies is her debut novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Maggie Smith. Maggie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited. I always tell beginning writers they should listen to your podcast because it's not only tells them about craft, but also gives them a, a peek into the publishing industry. So I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for that. And wonderful to interview a fellow podcaster. So the book, Truth and Other Lies, just for our listeners, I want to give them a bit of an overview of what the book's about. So this is from the flap copy. Megan Barnes's life is in freefall. After losing both her job as a reporter and her boyfriend in the same day, she retreats to Chicago and moves in with Helen, her overprotective mother. Before long, the two are clashing over everything from pro-choice to hashtag me too, not to mention Helen's run for US Congress, which puts Megan's career on hold until after the election. Desperate to reboot her life, Megan gets the chance when an altercation at a campus rally brings her face to face 
with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jocelyn Jones, who offers her a job on the PR team. Before long, Megan is pulled into the heady world of fame and glamour her charismatic new mentor represents until an anonymous tweet brings it all crashing down. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So a few things that I want to dive in immediately. So Truth and Other Lives, such an amazing, amazing title. When I looked it up, I saw that there was another book called The Truth and Other Lies. A question that our listeners always have is when picking a title, does it matter that there's another book with a title that's similar? So that's something I wanted to pick your brain about. Was that something you were aware of when picking the title? How did it inform your decisions? I was aware of that one. It was written by a Frenchman and it was several years old. It's almost impossible to find a really great title that hasn't been used. And titles can't be copyrighted. So I had other titles. For example, Lost and Found was one of the ones I had for this. And that's been used a lot in children's books, but not so much in adults. But now there is a book coming out with that. So yes, I thought about it. His was kind of a mystery and I did read it and it's very satirical. So I thought, well, Frenchman, man, quite a long time ago, it probably isn't going to be an issue. Probably the bigger issue is my name. People get me confused with other Maggie Smiths that are running around (laughs) more than the title. But yeah, I just thought it fit my book and that it had been a long enough time that I would be okay with it. Listen, Maggie Smith, to be confused with the other Maggie Smith is great. I wouldn't mind that. Certainly, you don't want to be confused with someone dodgy. So there's at least that. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And there's actually two of us because there's, of course, the one in England. And there's a Maggie Smith poet who is very well known. And I have gotten emails from her. She wrote a book of meditations during the middle of the pandemic that got a lot of, it was called Keep Moving. And I got a lot of heartfelt emails from people saying how they had read those meditations. It really helped them through the pandemic. And I had to say, well, I'm glad you got through, but that wasn't really me. (laughs) Here's her address. You two can swap fan mail as you're getting the wrong fan mail. You can just keep each other updated. And for our listeners as well, this is a concern that this is why some authors add a middle name or they will just use their initials, etc. So if you have a name that's kind of common or that there's another writer has the same name, that's when you might consider, even if you don't have a middle name, like J.K. Rowling does not have a middle name, but she added the K. But that was because they thought readers would not want to read books by a woman, which she's greatly disproven that, but that is something to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Something that is very clear, Maggie, is that you were very smart and extremely intentional in how you positioned this book. And it's clear in the way that you chose the cover art, etc. Because I've seen on Instagram, you have very generously shared, I think it's on Instagram, the story of how the evolution of the cover came about. So can we first talk about that? And then I'm going to move on to, to some other things that I thought were incredibly smart as well. How did you consult with the publisher in terms of the cover? How much control did you have? And how did you go about choosing the cover that you did, which is incredibly eye-catching. It's a lovely, lovely cover. Yeah, I I think everybody listening to this should go to somewhere where they could see the cover because it'll make more sense when we're talking about it. I come out of an art background. I owned an art company for many years. And even though I'm not an artist, I have an eye for that kind of thing. I also post on Instagram about covers. I do cover comparisons and talk a little bit about how I feel about different covers. So it was really important to me. I feel like this is your billboard for your novel. And luckily, I'm with a small press. I think this 
this wouldn't have happened at all if I was with a big publisher because I think they have a whole team of marketers who really feel like they have their pulse on what's going on with covers. And unless they are way off, they take suggestions initially from the author, but after that, it's their job to do that. But in the case of a small publisher, I really had a lot of control. It was much more collaborative. So there are a lot of ways you can do this kind of cover because it does have some secrets. It has a journalistic bent to it. So we went a lot of different ways in just looking at concepts to begin with. I kept saying, I I don't want it to be too on the nose, as writers say. And I've been known to get that critique on my writing. This is too on the nose. I didn't want the cover to just be three pictures of people's faces or something like that. But I did want it to say women's fiction for a genre. And so we were looking for a symbol of something that would kind of be feminine or, or have that sense that it was about women. And so we came up with the scarves through looking at some other, I think we went to one of these uh, do-it-yourself book covers, and it had three scarves falling down. And I thought, scarves, that's kind of an interesting idea. And I could use that in marketing, too. I could buy scarves and have them in photos and have them at the launch party or something like that. And so we began experimenting with that. And once we came up with the scarves, and then we did three scarves in on purpose because of the three women that are in the, the main characters interacting in the novel. And then we were able to also then through the scarves, because they're kind of flowing and interacting and braided together, we were able to also kind of hide some of the lettering underneath in a couple of the instances of the letters. So it organically went that way. It probably took a good two or three weeks back and forth pretty much almost every day with the cover designer of saying, not that, not that. And even when you get to the typeface of the book, we went through and found some women's fiction novels that were happening at that time and kind of saw that they many of them have this typeface. I don't remember what it is, but we thought that that would also lend itself to, oh, that looks like the other women's fiction books that I've read. And since that time, there'd been a couple of articles I featured in Instagram where people said, this is the trend. And I thought, oh, good. I was on the, tr- I don't know that I want to be always on the trend, but I don't want to be way off brand either. Yeah, certainly. And for our listeners, it was fascinating to see the different covers that they came up with and how Maggie decided which one she was going to use. So go to Maggie's Instagram, which is at Maggie Smith Writes, and you can see that all there. I was looking at it and I was going, I wonder if she should have asked people to vote. And then I realized every time we ask people to vote on the podcast, they're exactly split (laughs) 50-50. So, you know, even if you had three covers, 30% would love one, 30% the other, and so it goes. So sometimes that's not a good thing because people's tastes are so different. And we saw that when we were asking people for feedback in terms of our new logo for the podcast. But you've got a subtitle or a byline. I'm not even sure what to call it. So on the cover, it says a novel, truth and other lies. And then the subtitle says three women, two secrets, one lie. And that's really, really smart because not a lot of novels have like a subtitle that perfectly encapsulates what the story is about. Was that something that was always in your title? Is it something that you had to brainstorm to help you position the book? That came really late in the process, actually. I can just remember we had pretty much this cover and it just came to me. And I thought, oh, three, two, one, that's kind of interesting because now we've got, in just a few words, we've kind of also said, in case you didn't get it, there's three scarves and this is about three women. So it wasn't something that was there to begin with and it came very late in the process. It was like 
there seems to be a, a kind of a blank here. <laughs> That's again my eye of something. There needs to be something going on here in this lower part besides my name. And so we came up with it and right away the cover designer says, that's perfect and worked on how to fit it in. So it was a a last minute decision, I guess I would say, but I, I like it. Yeah, very much so. It makes me wonder why we don't do this more with books because I think it really did help position it. Something else was in the pitch, at the top of the pitch that went out, it's the devil wears Prada meets all the president's men. Now on the podcast, we're constantly talking about comps and how you need to position your novel, etc. So I'm assuming, Maggie, that these are comps that you had when you queried an agent or queried the publisher. Could you take us through that? I'm not sure if you first queried an agent or if you went straight to the publisher. What was your process there? And how were you already positioning the book early on? Well, I think the Devil Wears Prada was coming from the fact that one of the main characters is this famous journalist. And I really had in mind the Miranda Priestly character from Devil Wears Prada when I was writing that. It was like someone that is very, very good at their job at the top of their profession and really has adopts protégés, but maybe not forever, <laughs> uses them up. So she was very much the prototype for Jocelyn early on, and Jocelyn's gone through some permutations through the years that I was writing this. The All the President's Men was when I fleshed out more of the mother character and, and made her someone who was running for office, and also because Megan is an investigative reporter. So it kind of combined the political and the investigative reporter part where she's looking for this troll that is tweeting about Jocelyn in a negative way. So it kind of seemed to fit with both of those. Unfortunately, I think there have been people on early reviews that say, oh, well, I don't want to read anything about politics. I'm sick of politics. And so I have had to fight against that a bit to say it's not political. There is a political campaign going on with one of the characters, but it certainly isn't about politics per se. So maybe that comp is, eh. but I liked it. And yes, I did query agents. In fact, I queried Carly. (laughs) And I got a medium amount of rejections before I gave up on that part and went to small presses. And that's a huge option available to writers that I don't think enough writers pursue that because you can write a phenomenal book that's wonderful. And for some reason, it just is not going to get agent representation. And that doesn't take away from the fact that the book is really, really good. And I love that you tried it and then you were like, okay, that's not working for me. And I'm going to try an indie press. And you've run this extremely professionally, Maggie. I've been following you on Instagram, how you've been sending out the advanced reader copies to bookstagrammers, et cetera, et cetera. And these are things that we generally associate with with bigger presses. We think, okay, a Penguin Random House is going to do that. But if you're with a smaller press, that's not going to happen. And I assume that a lot of this is you taking the initiative along with the indie publisher. So if our listeners are wanting to go that route and that's how they decide to go, can you give them advice for running the operation the way you have? Because I think it's like a masterclass in indie publishing and an author really running their own campaign. Well, thank you. (laughs) I think you first have to be prepared for the fact that most of the cost for this is going to come out of your own pocket. Aside from the cost, I would say that what I hear, and this is from talking to 126 people on the podcast also, a lot of them, even when they are with big publishers, they are doing a lot of the marketing themselves. 
sometimes paying for it, sometimes not. But in terms of the legwork, they are doing a lot of it themselves, unless they are one of the big five or 10 releases that that publishing house is going to have that year. So I don't think it's unique. Uh, It certainly is required when you're with a smaller press. And in women's fiction, I think a great many people publishing with smaller presses or with hybrid presses, where they are actually paying much more than I was because they are actually paying for the print run as well. I all along was going to hire a publicist, so I knew that would be a big expense. And for the ARCs, yeah, I talked early on on the podcast, one of my very early guests had published with a hybrid press. And she said, I just made it a point of anybody that wanted an advanced copy, I gave it to them if they were a bookstagrammer. And she said that proved to be a really good decision. And so I gave out about 150 ARCs, not all to bookstagrammers, many to reviewers and things like that. And I did a fairly active campaign on NetGalley as well. For some reason, I had lots of people requesting on NetGalley. And so there were probably seven or 800 people that requested it there. And I think I approved about half of those. So I've got about 350 people that have read it there. So I haven't even released. I'm releasing uh, on March 8th. And I've already got a hundred and some reviews on Goodreads from those early readers. So I just wanted to make sure that the word was out and I felt like that was what I could do by putting some money behind it. And I did a Goodreads giveaway and I did some other giveaways on uh, reader Facebook pages. So I, I was really active in that. And my publisher really is a publisher that knows how to make books, but doesn't have, they do not have a marketing person on board. And although they have marketed their books, I think I am pushing them into areas that they haven't done before. Yeah. For our listeners who aren't sure about the difference between indie publishing, hybrid publishing, can you just give them a bit of a rundown on that just so that their understanding of it is clear? Well, indie publishing is typically what we used to call self-publishing. And that is basically you put your book up on usually Amazon. And sometimes all it is is an ebook, or you may do a print book or a print on demand book is more common. So you don't print a print run. You just, when people want it, somebody magically at Amazon prints it for them. So that's what indie publishing is. Hybrid publishing and small presses operate very similarly. They have a staff of people like mine has a cover designer on board, has an editor, has social media person that will do things that are free, you know, not, not paying for things. But the hybrid publisher will charge you a fee for that, usually several thousand dollars. I mean, one of the big ones charges almost eight, over $8,000, I think, for that services. And then you pay for the print run as well. So you may print 500, 1,000, whatever, and that can be several thousand dollars. So you're looking at maybe $10,000, $12,000 to get this book in your hands. And then they have distribution as well. So they will usually go through a place called Ingram, and Ingram salespeople will try and get it into bookstores and other outlets like that. With a small press, it can go anywhere in between. A lot of small presses have a hybrid arm, and then they offer traditional contracts. My publisher is like that. They first offered me a hybrid contract, and I said, no, I want a traditional contract. And so that's eventually what I got. 
which means I have a lower royalty, a lower commission. I get less money per things, but I didn't have to pay for any of the production and the cover design and those kinds of things. I would say on the hybrid press, you earn a royalty that's much higher. Usually it's like 60% as opposed to 10%. So hopefully if you sell enough copies, and by that I mean thousands, you will make up your money. Right. So all things for you to measure way up against each other if this is something that you're considering. And your publisher is called 1016, is that right? Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. 1016 Press. 1016 Press. So for our listeners who were interested in that. Okay. So to talk about the book itself, Maggie, it says three women and there are three very, very strong women in the book. But you chose to write the book from one character's perspective in terms of first person, past tense. So we get Megan's perspective. When you sat down to write it, was there a reason why you just wanted to write it from Megan's perspective, although it's these three very strong women, as opposed to writing three different points of view? How did you decide to approach that? Well, I did write the three points of view in an earlier version of it, although it was a totally different plot. It was an adoption plot. One of the people that reviewed it said, it's your secret baby story. (laughs) All women have this secret baby story that they seem to need to be telling. And it was. It was the mother finding out as an adult that she was adopted and going to look for the birth mother who turned out to be the Jocelyn Jones character. And so I had it from all three perspectives. And I think it was really one developmental editor that I hired to work with before I finished the book who said, it's a lot to take on three points of view and you're a debut novelist. Maybe you need to make this simpler. And I think you can frame the whole thing on the daughter because she's got a relationship with these other two people and you can show them through the interaction with her. And she's got the bigger arc to take. She's the driving force behind it. And so I took that advice, I guess. I do think that the other two characters, the Jocelyn Jones journalist and the mother, Helen, both have what you would in typical craft talk say they also have an arc in the book, even though they're not a point of view character. Yeah. And I love hearing that kind of part of the process because emerging writers will be like, how do I know which point of view is the best point of view to begin with? And honestly, sometimes you don't know. Sometimes it really is a process of elimination. So I begin every book I write, writing it from multiple points of view. First person from this character, first person from another character. I'll try third person. I'll do everything, present tense, past tense, as I try and find my way into a story. And sometimes you halfway through a story or in like your instance, you've finished the story and then you realize that it perhaps wasn't the best vehicle for that story. And it's certainly not wasted time because you needed to write it from all three characters' perspectives to realize that it would work better from one character's perspective. And I dare say that you learned so much about the other two characters writing them in the first person than what you otherwise would have. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I was going to say that even if they aren't the point of view character, as you write them, you do learn more about them, which informs the next iteration of this novel that you're going to do. I think partly also debut novelists have to give themselves a break in the sense that writing a novel is extremely hard. I've done a lot of things in my life, and I would say, hands down, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. So you're writing a book, which is hard, but you're also learning how to write. And I'm hoping it's going to be better the second and third book, that it won't be quite so hard, maybe not. But at least with the first book, it feels like I don't even know how long is a chapter? How many characters should I have? 
So you're feeling your way through that at the same time you're trying to do the hardest thing there is to do. So the character I didn't have a handle on in this iteration to begin with was the mother. And I think she's turned into the most interesting character, I think, in the book. Maybe she has the more interesting story. And she's not a character that sees the world like I do politically or like Megan does politically. She's a conservative and she's running on a pro-life platform. And so in that sense, I have almost nothing in common with her. And I think also there's a bit of the relationship that I had with my mother between Helen and Megan. And so I didn't feel like I understood my mother at all either. But that was, I think, primarily what I dealt with when I was writing the book this time in this plot was getting to know Helen a lot deeper because I was making her initially kind of a caricature. Maybe I didn't want to go there or maybe I just didn't understand her. But a lot of the developmental editing was spent digging deeper. Yeah, and um, she was really a very, very interesting character. I mean, in the beginning, I just kind of hated her because of everything she represents. And that kind of changes as the novel goes along and you reposition it. And I think it was Terry Macmillan who said, and of course, I'll be butchering what she said. I love Terry Macmillan who wrote Waiting to Exhale and how Stella got her groove back. She said that she chooses to write characters that at the beginning, she doesn't like them or she doesn't understand them. And it's her job as a novelist by the end of the novel to like them or to understand them. And I think that's excellent advice for writers. It's something certainly I think you pulled off here. And I know with my second novel, I wrote one character who was a sort of disgraced former nun. And I'm not a religious person at all. And I really wanted to explore what faith is and what this means to someone who's religious. And that's probably the character I struggled with the most because it's a character I could sort of connect with the least. And I think in my book, I, as the author, am going through a little bit the same thing Megan is because she doesn't understand Helen. She views her very in very black and white terms. And so as the novel goes through and they are thrown together more and more, and hopefully you see a progression going on slowly through the novel that Megan begins to understand her own mother more. Even to the point of Becca, her best friend, is saying, I don't know that you know who your mother is. I think there's things that you don't know about her. Things that have happened in her life, but also just how she views the world. And so I'm kind of going through that same thing, too, with Helen. I'm going, stepping in the same footsteps that Megan is, getting to know her through the book. And hopefully the reader is, too. Yeah. And this makes me think of something that I don't think we've verbalized on the podcast before, is that as much as your characters need to have character arcs, I feel like you as the novelist have your own character arc, your own journey in writing the novel, because in the same way that a character needs to be very different at the end of the novel to who they were at the beginning of the novel, I feel that as a novelist, who you are at the end of the book needs to be different to who you were when you started writing the book, because there's that journey that you need to go on as well. Right. And I think that's, you're usually in many novels, not necessarily all genres, but I think in women's fiction and things that are more emotional arcs, you're generally picking something to write about that has some resonance for your own life to the point that sometimes I will read things that I wrote in this novel and I'll kind of take them to heart. It's it's like the Joan Didion, I, I write to see what I think. There's a line very much at the end of the novel, but it won't give anything away, where Megan kind of says, Jocelyn made me feel special and I've been wanting that validation for all my life from my mother. 
and never got it. And she doesn't say that second part out loud. She says, I can barely admit that to myself. And I think that resonated a lot with me and does resonate with other people is the sense that you're looking for somebody else to do what you didn't get from your parent. And to realize that and realize that maybe that's not something you need to base your life decisions on, be aware it's maybe something you didn't get and you're going to have to get over it or solve that problem in a different way. Yeah, true. And writing a novel is a journey of self-discovery, boy. It's amazing the things that your your books and your imaginary friends will teach you um, <laughs> along the way, which makes it so such an incredible, incredible journey. Maggie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. For our listeners, Truth and Other Lies, look for it. Go and find Maggie's Instagram account to look at the progression of the covers, etc. And just follow Maggie in general for some amazing insights and just to learn more about the industry as well. And Maggie, we hope to have you back for your second book. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? 
Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest was born and raised in the rolling hills of Quebec's eastern townships. She has worked in archives for the past 20 years and has found some pretty amazing things, including lost letters, Darius notes, and once a whale's ear. She spent many years as an expat living in Brussels and in The Hague, where she worked for the International Criminal Tribunal for War Crimes in Yugoslavia. She lives in Ottawa, Canada with her daughter, dog, and husband. It's my pleasure to welcome Amy Tekto. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. I'm so delighted to be here. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you so much, and we're very excited to be chatting to you today. Before we dive in, I want to apologize to you and the listeners if you are hearing snoring in the background. That is my golden retriever, Muggle, who is apparently exhausted from the effort it requires to wake us up at 5am every single morning of our lives. And I keep trying to get her to go lie somewhere else, but she, she won't do that. So I do apologize for that. Now, Amy, before we carry on, I need to know about this whale's <laughs> ear. Please tell us about it. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a good story. Uh, for many years, I was a photo archivist at Library and Archives Canada, which is uh, Canada's National Archives. And part of the job, I, I'm kind of stealing credit because I say I discovered it. It was actually a colleague who came to me in my cubicle and said, get in here into the processing room and take a look at what I found. Part of what you do as an archivist is you bring in really just boxes of stuff, um, usually papers, usually papers, <laughs> sometimes some audiovisual stuff. You go through it. Part of the job is to categorize and classify it all and make it discoverable. So she had a collection from the East Coast of Canada, and she was going through it all and came across an envelope a yellowed, just regular old white envelope that had become all yellowed with age. And on the front of it was written whale's ear. And <laughs> she, and there was, I remember there being a smell. I might now be embellishing, but in my mind, there was a, there was a fishy odor. And sure enough, when you opened it up, there were not tiny, like one inch long bones with little bits of cartilage still attached, which were in fact the whale's ear that this person who lived on the East Coast, but didn't actually have any connection to fishing as far as we knew, had as part of their collection that they uh, wanted to donate to the National Archives. So that was a good one. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. So for those of you who want to donate to the podcast, please no whale's ears. Yeah. Actually, no, I kind of do want to whale's ears. So We'll take that in lieu of money as well. That is an epic story. Stop giving your colleague credit. I mean, you need to learn as a writer to always take all the credit you possibly can. Yeah. So a bit more about the book. So will you tell our listeners the premise for the novel before we dive into the questions that I have surrounding yeah, it? Yeah, uh, for sure. It's uh, The Honeybee Emeralds is a lighthearted mystery set in Paris amongst the expatriate community there. And it focuses on four POV characters who discover a beautiful diamond and emerald necklace 
and go about trying to solve the mystery of where the necklace came from, who owned it previously, and who it belongs to now. And in trying to solve that mystery, they have to dive into history, which as an archivist, I'm always interested in. So they do some research, they learn that it was owned by three what I call divas. So three real life, real world historical women, one of Napoleon III's mistresses and his most low class, low born mistress, Mata Hari, the famous First World War spy and treasonous villain of popular culture, and Josephine Baker, who is this amazing jazz age singer who lived and was born the granddaughter of slaves in St. Louis, Missouri, and lived for years and years and years to huge acclaim in France and is really a huge French cultural icon that's not always as well known in North America. So did you make up the necklace? Was the necklace historical fact or was it based on another necklace? How did you go about coming up with the premise of the story? I did make up the necklace. The jeweler in the story is based on a real life. There are a few real life French jewelers that are still in operation that have provided fabulous jewels of this kind to the French aristocracy for centuries. It's based on a true thing that such sort of exquisite, finely designed jewelry exists, but the necklace, in fact, doesn't exist, and nor does the jeweler that I write about. And in picking those three women that the necklace belongs to, tell us a bit about your thought process in terms of that, because I always say that any story could go an infinite number of ways, depending on which characters we choose to tell the story, etc, etc. And for here, I mean, you've got your fictional characters, but then you've also got these women who, you know, are historical figures. So why those particular women? The premise of the, the whole book really started because I wanted to write, I was in Ottawa, and I wanted to write something set in Paris, and I wanted it to be a mystery. But I didn't want to have to involve the French police force in it. I didn't want it to be a mystery that involved actual criminality, because I didn't want to have to do the research into figuring out how French policing worked. It just seemed too hard and uninteresting. I didn't want to do it. So I was like, aha, I'll do it. I'll do something historical, something that's more fun and and light, which suited kind of what I was going for as well. It'll be easier (laughs) to base it on historical figures, which was, of course, completely wrong. And I ended up doing massive, massive amounts of research on these three women. I can't even 100% remember how I decided on these three. My husband is massively, hugely helpful to me in my writing process, because I'll come to him and say, I have this idea, I want to have a stolen art object that has historical connections, and it's set in Paris. And then he is a really well-read guy, and he'll be like, oh, well, what about Josephine Baker, Matt Harry. So probably he gave me those two ideas. And then I knew that I wanted it to be in the 18, I wanted it to start in the 1870s just for my timeline. And so then I started doing research on Marguerite Belanger, who is my favorite of the historical figures because I knew nothing about her and she's not very well known, but she really was this amazing woman who was born in abject poverty and was a washerwoman and ended up like attaining one of the highest sort of points in French cultural life at the time of being the mistress of Napoleon III. That was actually almost an official position that, uh, that carried a lot of power. So she was the most fun to research. There was the least amount to research on her because she wasn't as well known. But yeah, so I, th- I think probably my husband <laughs> gave me some of the inspiration. And then Marguerite, just by reading about the time period and knowing kind of who I wanted to focus on, 
Napoleon III had a lot of girlfriends. So <laughs> I had my pick of ladies, but Marguerite really stood out as the most interesting. Yeah. And something that Amy said yeah, is something that our listeners should really take note of is when you begin writing, the challenges that that story poses is as much an influence on plot and the direction you go as anything else. So if you want to write like a murder mystery or whatever, but you don't want to write a procedural novel because you don't know how the police work, etc., etc., then coming up with these workarounds will inform so much of the novel. So we've discussed before on the podcast, Claire McIntosh, who wrote I Let You Go, which has that absolutely phenomenal twist. Now, Claire is able to write police procedurals because Claire used to be a police officer in the UK. I'm not sure of her exact ranking, etc. But if you're someone who's got an insider information to this, then of course, writing procedurals is easier. Or if you know someone whose brain you could pick and you're prepared to do all that research, then absolutely great. But otherwise, when you sit down, you need to understand the challenges that your novel's going to face, the obstacles, and know how much work you're prepared to put in and start brainstorming a lot of the workarounds. And I love the way that Amy went about that. Now, in terms of the structure of the novel, Amy, it's really, you were hugely ambitious. I mean, this is your debut novel. You have got, like you say, four POV characters. In terms of structure, you've got bits that are like just an exchange of messages between certain characters, like text messages exchanged. You've got letters that are worked in. I wouldn't necessarily call it a multi-timeline novel because there are vignettes that go back to the past, like here and there, but it isn't like a consistent multi-timeline novel. So could you tell us about how you decided to structure it and why you decided on so many POV characters as a debut novelist? Well, as I think you probably you have, I know you have talked about on the podcast many times, this is my debut novel, but it's not the first novel I've written. So I've got three or four <laughs> that I worked on that, that I didn't have published right away. All of the other ones that I've done have been single POV. And when I started writing this novel, my first, I hadn't thought that I would do multiple POV. And so I started writing with one character, Lily. And she was a little similar to some of the other characters that I've written before, sort of a probably a little bit similar, sharing some of my character, my own characteristics. And it's sort of where I naturally fall into. And it's kind of the character that I easily write. But as I was writing, I am a panther. There is no outline anywhere in sight. And so as I was writing, I think you've talked about this, other characters inserted themselves and they were part of Lily's story, but they were really interesting. And so it was really natural for me to then sort of add people in, add the other three voices in and include their stories and get their perspectives. And at the time, <laughs> I thought, oh, this is actually easier because I can get a lot of words in quickly because I'm telling different perspectives. And so it's not just the same person. Like I have to weave in a little bit of backstory for everybody. So that's going to, that sort of ups my word count. And when I'm doing my first draft, I'm obsessed with, you know, I want to hit my 90,000 or what my whatever. I just want to produce pages, terrible, garbagey pages. So it was really helpful for me to have these other characters that I could go into because I would come to one fresh and I'd be like, oh, now what's going to be her perspective? And I'd work it through on the page and I'd get her perspective. And then the challenge was I've got two characters, especially who are good friends, Lily and Daphne, who often sounded alike. 
and they are from similar backgrounds. So that's where I tried to spend some time really pulling them apart. So it was clear that they've got different points of view. But because it was four characters who had four different sets of problems at the outset of the novel, and they interacted and had relationships, I actually found it easy. I think because I'd never attempted it before, I didn't know that it was hard. <laughs> and then as I then kept trying to go, you know, I, I don't know how many times I edited it, because I am a pantser. And so then I would be like, Oh, God, like, now I've got to make sure that this makes sense with that, and that their relationships, their inter the characters into relationships make sense, and that plot wise, everything's following and I'm on the right day for everybody. And so it became more complicated as I went. But for the initial output, I found it quite easy, because when I would get bored with one character, I would just switch over to somebody else and have their perspective on the action and, and have their own thoughts and their own problems being worked out on the page. Yeah. And what you've just said in terms of the timeline, it helps me when I write something in terms of timeline to use software like Eon to timeline so that I'm always knowing at this day, this character's doing this. This is their age. Things that a lot of writers just completely forget about when they're writing are things like holidays, things like Valentine's Day, things like a character's birthday, things like, is it the weekend? Is it a weekday? And your copy editors will quickly tell you that if you mention a full moon and there wasn't a full moon on that day, you've got a problem there. So I like to keep that all structured in that kind of software so that every time I go back, even if I change something slightly, the software keeps track of that for me. How were you keeping track of all of these different threads? Did you have a whiteboard? Did you have an Excel spreadsheet? Were you just scribbling notes? I'm always interested in how other writers manage that. So for that book, I had Google Docs. I was doing everything in Google Docs, which is not great in terms of moving around and cutting and pasting. You can't like to get really technical, it's hard to select and cut stuff. You don't even, it doesn't even have the same functionality as Word, but I was on a bunch of different computers and it's what I had to use. So I was using Google Docs. I had a rough timeline, but I'm impatient. And so I wouldn't go back and update it myself. So I'd have the timeline from say, when I first started writing the book. And of course, like you said, things would change. I'd decide that they all needed to go off to the Loire Valley and suddenly I need two more days in the timeline. So I managed that as best I could through the story and through my own head. And as I was writing it, my chapters were each chapter had the person's name and what day it was, because it all kind of happened probably over three weeks. And then the historical stuff was kind of out of time. It was actually easier to keep track of, because like you said, it's not a historical novel. It's just some flashbacks to various periods. So that was easy. And then I sent it all off. And of course, I was a debut author, so I didn't know how this worked. And my first edit back, the editor had caught, like, it was a Tuesday one day, and then suddenly it's a Sunday. And what's happened? How could you have done all these things on the on the weekend? The weekend totally true. I was like, oh my God, there's a weekend in there. How am I going to do this? So I had to do a massive rewrite of the last probably third of the novel because my timeline was wonky and I had not noticed. And I was in awe of the editor for picking it up. Like, they're so amazing. <laughs> they read with such attention. Yes. So yeah, so that was a lot of work. So since then, I've now bought Scrivener, which I have, I'm still learning, but it... <laughs> But I'm enjoying it and I am trying in my, my new novel to keep better track. But what I do find helpful is to title every section, not for actual publication, but in the drafting with what day it is, or even if I've got many chapters happening over one day, what time it, you know, it's noon, now it's 3 p.m., now it's 5 p.m., just so that I can keep track. 
because I, I do sort of feel this sort of frantic pressure to get stuff on the page. So then I feel like it's a waste of time, which is not the case to be keeping track of that timeline, because it's better to do it as you go. So that's, I am learning that. That's a great question. Yeah. But also for our listeners, keep this in mind that you think that this is all scaffolding that only you as the writer need to know. Keep all of this information because when the time comes to work with your copy editor, etc., it is so much more helpful to them if you send them the notes that you have on your timeline. So for me, I'm just with the book I'm currently working on, I'm just going to send them a link to the timeline software so that they can just cross-reference everything to that as they're going through it, which makes their job so much easier. And also, if you've kind of made an oopsie like Amy did, and like I certainly did in my first novel, it's easier for them to pick that up as well. And yes, thank goodness for editors. Boy, their eagle eyes are, they've saved us from a lot of hassle. In terms of your journey to publication, Amy, I want to chat a bit in today's episode about independent publishers, because I feel like writers are so fixated on the big five or the big however many there are now, I can't keep track of all these mergers. They tend to overlook independent publishers. And may I just say what an amazing job Keylight Books has done. They're an imprint of Turner Publishing. They have done such an amazing job with this book. It's it's one of the most beautiful books I've seen in terms of the setting inside, the way they've used these little pictures, the way all of the text messages have been separated on these beautiful pages with some lovely, I'm sure there's really technical words. I'm just going lovely pictures. I'm sure some poor person who sets the pages is sitting there muttering darkly about me right now. But can you tell us a bit about that process? Did you have to get an agent first? How did you go about that? And what is the process of working with them been like? Because again, the cover's beautiful. You could just see so much care has been taken with this, which you don't always see with the bigger publishers. Yes, thank you. I agree that my book and my cover and the and I was not expecting the in the I don't know what they're called, what it's called either, but all those beautiful pages and the there's sort of different pages if it's a text message versus when it's in the past. All of that has nothing to do with me. It was all them and it was gorgeous. And the cover, they showed me some designs that were all very similar to what we have and I picked, but I could not have in a million years come up with such a beautiful cover. So I am not a visual person <laughs> at all. So yeah, that, that has been amazing. And I'm working with them on a couple more books coming up. And it seems that this is the process. So I'm really I'm delighted by that. I didn't know I had. Um, well, so my my journey to publication, I think it will be interesting to your listeners, because I don't have an agent. I tried I listen avidly to books of books and realize all the mistakes I made and all of my query letters back in the day. I queried the Honeybee Emeralds for 18 months. I was using Query Tracker, which is a great tool. And I was going through and I was I thought I was doing it all right. I know better now, but I was sending out my query letters and I had some requests for full and some requests for partial and lived the journey of the ups and the downs and the disappointments. I had a session with an agent at Manuscript Academy. I paid for that and then they gave me a critique of the query letter and I think maybe my first five or 10 pages, I can't remember. And it was wonderful and they were fantastic and so helpful. They told me that my title wasn't good because I had a different title before the Honeybee Emerald, which they were correct about. So that was great too. We need to know that title, please. <laughs> the title was Bonjour Paris, which is the name of the magazine that the book centers around, but it's not as good as the Honeybee Emerald. So that was good advice. So when I talked to that person that I had been querying for a year and I said to them, listen, like I've been at this for a year, I'm kind of... <laughs> 
feeling like this, this isn't going to happen. Should I keep going? And she said, give it another few months. And I said, Oh, all right. And so I, I really was going to quit. I was like, this person doesn't sort of say, wow, I want to take this and publish it. I'm done. But she was encouraging. So I thought, okay, I'll keep going. So I was giving it another few months. And I had told myself January 2021, January 30th, I will stop querying. And, and in December, I then stopped querying agents. I still had a few queries out with people. I stopped querying agents and I started looking at where I could query publishers who accepted unagented. So essentially not the big five. And so again, query manager, query tracker, I get those mixed up, but has a function for publishers as well. So I started in on that and started to do all that different kind of research into submitting directly to publishers. There are a ton of publishers who do accept unagented submissions, which I was delighted to discover. I'm Canadian, so I also had Canadian publishers available who often will either only take Canadian authors or, yeah, they have a preference for Canadian authors. But So those guys were on my list too. But in fact, Keylight is an American, small American publisher out of Nashville. And I didn't know a ton about them. I had looked. They seemed legit because that's the important thing. You, you don't want to have to pay a fee to submit. You want to make sure that they are doing everything correctly. So they seemed legit. I sent that thing off. I think their website said you can hear from us in six to eight months, something like that. So I did all of those before the Christmas break. And then I went about my business. And in early January, lo and behold, I got an email from the editor, the acquiring editor at the time. And it was the email... <laughs> <laughs> that you dream of saying, I loved your book. I picked it out of this slush pile. Couldn't stop reading. I read it over the weekend. Couldn't put it down. I'd love to talk to you. And I had that phone call with a person who loves your book. And people I have heard, because I've been querying for, you know, I've been doing this for, for years and years and years. And people have often said, like, you just have to find the person who loves your book. And I'm like, mm -hmm, whatever. <laughs> but I lived it. I can tell you it's true. I found the person who loved my book. She lo It made me feel so good. I got off the phone after that conversation. And I said to my husband, even if this book doesn't get published, I don't care. That phone call, that conversation, talking to someone about the details of the book and like, oh, and then they go into the basement and I wonder why the character did this, that, and the other thing. And it was someone who didn't know me, didn't love me, like wasn't my friend who was enthusiastic about the book. It was exhilarating. And that's also why I love your podcast so much, Bianca, because your tagline of it only takes one yes. I was like, yes, that's that's exactly what happened to me. So getting overexcited. <laughs> But, it, you know, it really does. And you start to think that yes is never going to yeah. come. And you're like, I need to give up on this. This yeah. is ridiculous. I know Americans especially have got this thing, never give up, never give up. And I'm not someone who believes in that because I firmly believe, like, for example, if it was my life's dream to become a figure skater who is on ice and in shows, like, come on, I am never going to bloody well be a figure skater. I'm never going to get that. In which case, I'm I'm a very practical person. I'm a Capricorn. I'm like, you know what? Forget that stupid dream. Do something you can do that is attainable. So I don't believe in this. Don't ever give up. Always keep going. Because really, there are some dreams that you are just, you're never going to make come true. But when it comes to writing, I feel like the true writer is born in the crucible of those rejections. You go through this valley of death of rejections and it hardens the clay of you. And then that's when you decide, I'm going to be a writer or I'm not going to be a writer. And I'm going to carry on or I'm not going to carry on. And just think if after you had that chat with that agent, if you had given up, 
as you wanted to, you wouldn't be here. And I mean, you said you rewrote this book how many times? Can you tell us that as well? How long did you spend on it? I probably spent probably two years on it. And I rewrote it probably. I mean, it started out as a very, very different book. Yeah. So I probably rewrote it 10 times easily with different. And I will say in this, I have been writing for for 20 years. And what sustained me through it all through all the rejections, because I threw many manuscripts out there and didn't but I had a critiquing group, which is another thing that I really value about the work you're doing, Bianca, because that critiquing group is the thing that kept me going. Because even when the agents and the publishers didn't want my book, my critiquing group would give me this wonderful advice or encouragement or, or not even encouragement, they'd be like, this doesn't work. And that was so useful. And it was so even like, I would just tell myself I'm being creatively fulfilled by writing for my critiquing group, if nothing else. And it's a wonderful hobby. I was trying as much as possible to not look for that external validation of you've got to be a published author in order to really be a writer. And I was trying to think of myself as a writer. But the, and the critiquing group was hugely helpful for that. And it, it continues to be that sort of place where I got so much fulfillment and support, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, our time is up, Amy. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> and Muggle, thankfully, has stopped snoring. And the farting has stopped as well. That's also muggles, by the way, in case anybody thinks that's me. So for our listeners, The Honey Bee Emeralds, Amy Tector, look for it. A lovely, lovely book, both the work and the layout of the book. It's just a thing of beauty. Congratulations, Amy. I'm so incredibly happy for you. And uh, be in touch with us when the next book comes out. Thank you. Will do. This is really a wonderful conversation, Bianca. Then I have a course coming up on the 13th of April from 7 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time called Leaning into Specificity. So you've heard us on the podcast talking about specificity, but what exactly does it mean? So in this two and a half hour webinar, I will take you through the theory of why specificity is so important to the process of elevating a story. I'll also show you examples and lead you through exercises so that you can immediately practically apply everything that you've learned. If you want to sign up for the book club or for the specificity course, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look for the courses tab, and you will find the areas there to sign up. Then finally, there's a giveaway happening that we think you would be interested in. If you live in Ontario or near to Ontario, or if you can travel to Ontario, there's a wonderful giveaway happening on Instagram by the account The Guillemot. So that's the and then G-U-I-L-L-E-M-O-T. It's a weekend stay from the 28th and the 29th of May. Uh, There are certain rules there that you need to follow to enter the competition, but it's a place that I've been to write and I can greatly, greatly recommend it. You can either go by yourself to get away from everyone or the uh, cabin. There's an extra cabin there as well at Sleep 6. So you can maybe take your five closest writing friends with you. So head to the Guillemot on Instagram to enter for that. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. 
Hi guys, Carly here. I want to tell you about my newest webinar coming up. It is on April 5th and it is called Identifying and Cultivating Your Author Brand. And there's a number of reasons why I find this topic so important. And one of the things that I stress in this webinar um, is that your brand, it's not this fabricated and complicated thing. Your author brand is just who you are and how you present yourself online, recognizing these strengths, being strategic at times, but practicing behavior that plays into these strengths. This is what's key. Here's what I'm going to cover. What's the difference between an author brand and an author platform, social media and author website, best practices, what publishers will do for you versus what you have to do on your own tips from successful authors and where to focus your energy for where you are at in your career at this time. Author brand should not be a scary topic, should not be a scary word. It's really just part of being a content creator in the year 2022. And remember, authors are content creators because number one, you are writing a book, you're creating content. Number two, you're selling those books and largely going to promote them online. And number three, you're going to create essays and memes and campaigns and all of this is going to be marketed online. So it's time to think about, if you haven't already, how to pivot to thinking about yourself as an author brand. So I really look forward to seeing you guys. You can find all the information, carlywaters.com slash webinars, or find me on Twitter at carlywaters. The webinar is going to be April 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern. It will be recorded. So if you want to catch it live, you can. And if not, you can also buy it ahead of time and get the recording sent to you. I hope to see you guys there. Hi, everyone. It's Cece. I wanted to tell you about my latest webinar that's coming up on April 28th. It's called Writing Tension, and it's all about how to create tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. We'll cover things like types and sources of tension and conflict, how to effectively establish and escalate tension, conflict, and stakes, the most common mistakes and biggest challenges about these elements of storytelling. And of course, I'll share plenty of tips and tricks on how to know if you have enough tension, conflict, and stakes in your scenes. We'll also have time for a Q&A session. You can find all the information on this two-hour webinar on the link in my bio on Instagram or Twitter and on Bianca's website. And if you can't make it on April 28th, don't worry. The session will be recorded and a recording will be sent to everyone who is registered 24 hours after the event. I hope you'll join me. I look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to our second Q&A session. Remember, if you're a listener and you do have questions about publishing, in the past, we did finish off the podcast by saying, if you have a question about publishing, please email me. But I'm afraid that we just get too many questions um, and I'm not able to reply to them all individually. So this is the solution that we've now come up with. Uh, if you go to the website, if you look at the podcast page on biancamaray.com, there is a link there whereby you can record your question and then we will do our best to answer that for you. So today we're going to be diving in with that. Hi, my question has to do with the location of the agent. Um, I'm unsure as an author in the U.S. if it's advised against querying, for example, an author in the U.K. Um, or does that not matter? What advice do you have about that? 
My answer to this one is always think about the market that you want to be published in. So it doesn't necessarily matter where you are or where the agent is. It's does that agent have a track record selling in the category and in the location, you know, selling the rights, licensing the rights where you want to be published. So you kind of have to work backwards a little bit in terms of how you think about it. For example, I am physically based in Canada. Um, I did my training in the UK, but I sell most of my books in the US. So it's really just about, you know, where are they selling books? You know, where is their experience? where they're located is almost secondary, especially in this digital age where we do so much via Zoom and email. Wonderful. And and so, you know, if somebody um, is in the US, but perhaps the story is based in the UK, or perhaps the story is the kind of story that the UK would be more likely to publish than in the US, then you recommend that they then query a UK agent. Exactly. Yep, exactly. Good morning. I would like to know, what are some of your favorite literary fiction titles? Thank you for your help. Bye. I will begin by just saying that some of my favorites in the last year, three of my favorites, literary fiction favorites in the last year, were Still Life by Sarah Winman, Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, and uh, Fight Night by Miriam Taves. And that's just in, in the last year. Obviously, these things could go on forever if we discuss our all-time favorites. Uh, Cece, what, what are yours? I love the question because there's nothing I love more than talking about books. But, oh my gosh. Um, okay, so Exciting Times by Naomi Stolen is one of my all-time favorites. I'm obsessed with that book. I won't shut up about it. Another one that I loved recently... Oh, The Vanishing Half. We have to mention The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Oh gosh. Oh, The Harpy. I don't know who wrote The Harpy. I should know these things. Just for our listeners, what you can hear in the background is Cece's dog, Bubba. We are not even going to try and silence Bubba. Bubba has every right to be there and to be expressing himself. So so that's what we're dealing with here. Usually, usually he's not in the room with me, but we're recording at a different time. So thank you, everyone, for bearing with me. Oh, The Margot Affair by Sine Lemoyne. I also loved that one. There are too many books. I'm going to start to asking to see these questions in advance if I have to prepare. <laughs> I, I also recommend all... All Amor Tolls. I've I've loved every Amor Tolls books as well. What do you say, Carly? I had to go to my Instagram because I post everything I read on Instagram. So I had to go remind myself. Um, I'm just the biggest Lauren Groff fan. So The Matrix was um, just my A-plus literary read lately. But I have to say, I've read such little literary fiction in the past year. So this is reminding me I need to, I need to up my game. But I'm, I'm a true blue Lauren Groff fan. Hello. First, I want to thank you all so much for the podcast. I've learned so much and I just love the laid back vibe. Now my question, I'm writing young adult fantasy and it's written in the first person. Right after the climax, I introduce one of the secondary characters point of view. It's a case where we know this character, but because something that happens to the main characters um, for the story to continue, we need to hop into someone else's head. It's meant to be jarring, slightly unsettling, but hopefully not enough to have the reader put the book down. My only beta reader so far did respond positively to this happening. My question for this is twofold. Do you think it's necessary to weave in this other character's point of view earlier in the novel before the climax? And second, when querying, do I mention this second point of view? Do I call this a dual POV novel? Thank you. If it only happens once after the climax, is that right? Um, then I would not mention it in the query letter. It feels like just unnecessary detail. If it's meant to be jarring, but not in a bad way, 
and that's what your beta reader is telling you, then I think you'll be fine. I don't think you should weave in the point of view just so we can get used to that. I, I'm, I'm not in favor of that at all. Um, I wonder if there might be opportunity to weave in this person's point of view once before as well, just so it appears twice or maybe three times. Perhaps in like first act, second act, third act, that might work. It's always difficult to answer questions that are hyper-specific to a book we, we haven't read, not even a single page of. Um, but what I will say is that whenever you try to deviate from the norm, it's high risk, high reward, right? So if your book is working um, all the way up to the climax and that's the one thing that's not working, I don't think you'll have trouble finding interest because... Agents are used to working with their clients, obviously not, you know, overhauling everything, but they're used to doing some editorial work. So I think you'll be fine. Also, they said that that's when they introduce it, but they haven't stated if it's just one chapter where these, this POV character is or from the climax onwards, it becomes, you know, that this character has a POV quite often. Does that change your advice, Cece or Carly? I think it depends on how often it it shows up. I can think of a book, it's called The Heirs, where it's, you get, I don't even know how many points of view, I just want to say six, but you only get, but you get them one chunk at a time. So you, you no one, no one's POV is ever repeated. And it works really well, even though it's not a common, common um, structure at all. So I honestly think that honor whatever is working for your story, try to make it work organically, which is which seems to be what you're doing. Just remember that it is really important to listen to your beta readers and critique partners and to get more than one opinion. And do try to pick critical people because compliments are wonderful, but you do want people to be able to challenge you. And you can always try to approach it differently if you're feeling insecure about it, just to see what it would sound like. But yeah, I think that you're on the right track. <laughs> this is really hard to answer without seeing any material. I mean, if it's just a one-off, don't mention it. If they just start appearing repeatedly after the climax, I have a lot of questions because I think that if they're going to be repeating, like repeated chapters after the climax, that they should appear earlier in the novel. I think I think that would stand out to agents, and I think that would stand out to editors. So that would be um, that would be something to think about. I don't think just like making somebody appear in the second half or, or later third is the, is the right move necessarily. But this is kind of impossible to answer without seeing anything. Yeah. Again, you know, we give you all these rules, and but if you break them well, then you know you've broken them well. All right. Uh, next question. Hey there, this is R.B. Graham. I'm a poet. I'm interested to know the best way to go about publishing a collection of poems in the traditional sense. Thank you so much. So I love poetry, huge poetry fan. I buy like 20 poetry collections a year. I am a huge, uh, huge proponent of the market and love supporting poets. I don't represent poets. Um, not that I wouldn't. It's just a very, very specific market. And there's a certain number of publishers that do it. You know, if a poet is also going to write other things, very happy to represent them. Um, but there is a very traditional market in a certain number of kind of classic poetry publishers. And there's a very specific poetry community, right? And there's just a very, there's a lot of rules kind of with what is considered to be, you know, a, a a classic poet and things like that. So, um, you know, an agent kind of getting involved in that world is pretty rare. It's not uncommon. Um, but I would represent a poet if they are probably doing other things, because then I could probably be more useful to them. Because what I am able to offer is everything 
everything from, you know, editorial support and moral support and contracts and all these other things. The poetry world just works differently. And so my skill set is better suited to people that do things other than poetry, which is generally the consensus of of agents, especially um, commercial and trade agents. But yeah, I'm a huge poetry fan personally. Yeah. Yeah. My advice there is to find indie publishers who are putting out anthologies and, you know, submitting to them directly. Um, in Canada, there's a wonderful resource. Uh, her name is Katie Marshall Flaherty and, uh, she, she does a lot of poetry. Um, look for, for her website. I think she does publish advice on that. Uh, and then another one is Sue Reynolds, who does something called Ink Slingers. I know pre pandemic, they used to have nights in Toronto where it was open mic and people could read from their poetry collections. Um, and I know that she has published a few uh, poetry collections as well. So look them both up and, and be applying to indie publishers directly. Make sure you're getting poetry published, right? Like submit to lit mags, like just get your words out there, get them printed, right? You can call yourself a poet as soon as you kind of get something out there. So it's just about starting to build that poetry brand, which is very specific. Yeah, wonderful. Hi, this is Harper. And this question is for all three of you. I believe everyone has a story they would like to write that is either out of their reach because of time, knowledge, or a strong enough desire to do all the research required, or is too personal to them to share all of the details with us. Um, If a specific story, though, could fall out of your head easier than any book you've ever written, or it was personal, personal stuff, but no one would know it was you, what story would you tell? So, Hopper, I could tell you, but then I would have to kill you. So um, for me, you know, uh, a story that I could not tell would be a story that I just felt was way too personal uh, to write about, uh, which means it's way too personal to to speak about. So I think my answer is the same because, yeah, of course there are stories that could fall out of my head um, that are way too personal for me to try to write, but but I'm certainly not going to talk about them. No, no offense, because we love you all. But yeah, no, it's, <laughs> if it's too personal to write, it's certainly too personal to talk about. I'm actually way more comfortable expressing myself in writing. Let's just say that it would land me in jail. <laughs> now we're intrigued, Cece. Uh, and then we had a question about hooks. Uh, somebody wrote in and said that they saw that CC had spoken about hooks at the retreat. And they were asking if, you know, we could, we could speak a bit more about that or do it on an episode. That is more a walk, workshopping thing. It's unfortunately not something we can tackle in just half an hour, but CC is definitely considering, um, doing that as another course in the future. So definitely look out for that. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. 
Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.